Shabnam was just 15 when she arrived in Australia as a refugee. She and her family had fled a war-torn Afghanistan to a refugee settlement on Pakistan's border, where she grew up listening in real time to the terrors of life under the Taliban. So all these years later, she's been watching with horror the events unfolding in her homeland right now, as Taliban 2.0 regains total control of the country and desperate Afghans are still trying to flee. This might have slipped from our headlines, but it's still the headline of life for tens of thousands left behind. Wonderfully, Shabnam is now the chair of Australia's national refugee-led advisory and advocacy group. As an Afghan woman, she is particularly worried about what life under the Taliban is going to mean for the girls and women who remain. I grew up as a refugee, as an Afghan refugee in a town um, in a city on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan, so just very close to that. But I grew up with uh, other refugees from Afghanistan, like me, around me. You know, there was no, um, for a very long time in my life, I didn't know that that wasn't home, really. <laughs> you know, you don't, um, You, I grew up with people around me who looked like me, spoke the same language as me, dressed like me, ate the same food. Um, it wasn't until, uh, you know, and I started getting a little older and the realities um, started kicking in, the fact that, you know, I was getting an education, but it wasn't going to count towards anything. It was never going to be recognised in the country where we were because, you know, I was um, receiving, I was getting edu- educated in an Afghan school in a refugee town and that would not have been recognised had I completed my schooling there, for example, and I would have had to either go back to Afghanistan somehow, um, continue the rest of my education there, or um, give up on education. What was your family's home in Afghanistan before having to flee? Afghanistan's been in in a war-ridden state. It has a complex history, and um, there was the same was true for my family. You know, um, when I talked to my mum and dad, there wasn't really a home that they... um, spent the majority of their lives at. You know, they were um, very involved in the the affairs, the national affairs of Afghanistan, and that meant they had to move around quite a bit. Um, and uh, yeah, and that it wasn't really that safe for them. My parents were uh, a little bit involved in the, the political affairs, and it just became too unsafe for them to stay. Is there a large Afghan community in in Australia? Yeah, um, there is a, I think, around a 70,000 strong Afghan community in Australia. Um, Afghanistan is a very diverse uh, country, ethnically, culturally, religiously. um, So, and that's reflected within the uh, community here in Australia as well. You know, have the different ethnic groups and um, 
who have come in different waves to uh, to Australia. You know, some of us came here um, in very, very early on during, um, you know, the Afghan Kamaliyas that we know and um, hear about so much um, mm. from back in the 1800s. Uh, and then the more recent arrivals have unfortunately been because of war. I know um, there was a wave that came around the 80s and 90s after the uh, um, the Russian invasion and then the others during the Taliban and then yeah um, there's been some more arrivals since then um, the Afghan community is strong we're sp spread across the country really um, but we're connected I think there's a uh, something uh, shared bond and you know they say that you can get us out of Afghanistan but you can't take Afghanistan out of us Taliban fighters marching through the streets dressed in all white the color of the Taliban's flag, and a symbol they're ready for martyrdom. While outside the last remaining U.S. base at Kabul airport, chaos continues. This is what crowds have to face to get inside. So tell me how you feel having watched what's unfolded in Afghanistan in the last um, couple of months. I mean, obviously, <laughs> the last 20 years and, and more, but I mean, I mean, recently, I mean, so many of us who aren't connected to Afghanistan have watched on in horror and disbelief. But can you give me a sense of what it's like to watch from afar in your shoes? I've been shattered, John. I feel like I've lived an entire lifetime within the last month and a half. Um, the the emotions, the the devastation, um, the the distress is so intense but then with that also there is a sense of responsibility um the survivor's guilt is at an all-time high right now i've always felt that um growing up you know even in pakistan um we're relatively little safer there but then having uh, come to australia and building a life here from scratch and having all the the opportunities and privileges that comes with life in australia i've always felt a um a sense of uh, responsibility towards the people of Afghanistan but that has intensified quite extremely really over the last month and a half it's it, it's heartbreaking and it's um uh, it's very shattering to see um, our homeland fall into um, the hands of the the group that terrorized us for so many years so for so long and it's just happened again you feel like it's slipping through your fingers you know you want to hold on to every little bit of it as much as possible and it's a lot harder doing it from diaspora um, you know those of us who've been displaced because of things like this in the past and you just um, I feel like personally I started feeling a little bit hopeful um, I had started feeling a little bit hopeful for the future of Afghanistan and then now all of a sudden that's shattered you know you're seeing the same scenes that our parents went through um, and it's another generation that's going through this um, chaos now it's another generation's future and lives lost really all of that talent all of that potential all of that progress that was made in Afghanistan now gone in in an instance <laughs> 
just this morning, really, I was um, going through frantically going through the news and um, connecting with people there on the ground. And you know, they have banned education for for girls above the age of twelve. Um, that's just you know one of one of the the draconian laws that are going to now be introduced. The Ministry of Women's Affairs is gone um, overnight, and you know you you can't process that. You can't even fathom something like that happening. And um, what's ex- what's extremely painful is that the rest of the world has just become used to news like that coming out of countries like Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You know, we would never ever allow something like that to happen in Australia. But we have been desensitized to, you know, after after decades of war in Afghanistan and it's just another news that comes out. That's what what's heartbreaking right now. Um and for for the people who weren't able to get out, um, you know, some did not I, I feel like most who did get out were reluctant to do so. They, no, nobody would want to do, to do that. Um, they'd want to build their futures and their lives in in that country, but you know, circumstances were such that they had to uh, make a very, very difficult decision in a very short period of time. Um, but those who are stuck are at the moment, about a month and a few days after total control of the Taliban, I think right now people are in limbo and just waiting, waiting for uh, what the future holds. Heavily armed Taliban fighters are out in force and for some their presence means law and order on the streets. But women and religious minorities are especially concerned about what will come next. There are reports several female journalists have been threatened, even as a Taliban spokesman has said there will be no violence against women. We do hear some reports of there now being somewhat of a peace um, in the country, but then peace at the cost of what? At the cost of their freedom, at the cost of their human rights, really. Um, and it's the fear and the horror um, is intense. It's it's extreme right now um, and helplessness. You know, there's 38 million people in Afghanistan who just don't know what the future holds for them. Um, they can sense that it's not going to be a good one. They can, you know, it's already heavy. Um, some are paying the price already. We are hearing um, women being executed in daylight for having attended a protest against the Taliban. Um, you know, the Hazara ethnic minority, um, last time the Taliban were in power, they massacred, they were massacred. They committed genocide against the Hazaras and it's it's you know like a like a, a lamb in waiting for a pack of wolves to to surround it. You speak of the Hazaras. Does the Taliban want rid of them for religious reasons? Do they not conform to their vision of religion, or or is there something else going on? You know, you don't know what the Taliban want really. <laughs> if if people had figured them out, I feel like we would not be where we are right now. Um, all we know is that they're a barbaric terrorist group. Um, they have an agenda, and that is total oppression and suppression of the people of Afghanistan. Um, Hazaras have historically been persecuted and discriminated against in 
Afghanistan and it's it's incredibly hard for Hazaras to to blend in. <laughs> you know, when I was little, I grew up um, learning the saying from elders in the community that a Hazara holds um, his or her passport on their face. And that's because of their facial and physical features. It's very easy to identify a Hazara. You know, their, their very existence is a threat to their life at the moment. Their identity is a threat. Watching on, um, I, I feel like there's nothing I can do. I mean, sure, I can interview you and we can get a podcast out, but um, you, you think we can do things. So so tell me, what, what can we do if we're feeling powerless to do anything? Yeah, we absolutely can do, John. I, any action, any thought, how no matter however small or big right now, um, will make a difference. You know, you may not be able to see the difference right away or the impact of what you're doing but at the moment um, we can and by we I mean Australia can do um, you know Australia was involved in the intervention Australia was one of the first um, nations that joined America um, in the intervention and occupation of Afghanistan for over 20 years and it contributed we contributed to the progress made in Afghanistan whether that was in education or women's rights or political participation or arts or sports you know um, and our uh, uh, the people of Afghanistan who helped our mission, Australia's mission there, are now at risk. And, you know, as a, a bare minimum, what we can do as a country is to um, uh, to return the favour. And, um, you know, our the Afghan-Australian community here is looking to the government and asking um, to, uh, to, to step up and follow the leads of countries like UK and Canada who have announced that they will take um, a, a one-off... Uh, additional humanitarian um, intake from Afghanistan. And the number's not a lot. You know, we we, we talk about 20,000 as a very big number, but there are 38 million people at risk in Afghanistan right now. All of, you know, half of them are um, facing famine and starvation at the moment. But 20,000 is not a big number, and that's the least Australia can do right now, is to commit to take... Um, 20,000 of the most persecuted and vulnerable um, people from Afghanistan and bring them to safety right now. But, you know, that's, yeah, that's that's what we can do internationally. Looking into, um, on our own uh, shores, we have around 5,000 refugees from Afghanistan who have been with us within the community for um, almost a decade now, uh, but under temporary protection, meaning they haven't been able to um, get on with their lives. They haven't been able to set up and, and you know, um, to to just live in, not not in limbo. And that's what uh, we can do, is to call on the Australian government to show compassion, grant them permanent protection. That's the least we can do right now. So let me um, just ask the kind of, I don't know, the, the moral argument question. Why should we take this increase of 20,000 Afghan refugees? Imagine you're not talking to me, but... You know, to someone who's sceptical about taking in that many people, that seems like a lot. What is the argument you would say to them? It is our 
direct involvement in, in, in Afghanistan over the last 20 years that has directly resulted to what's happening there right now. Um, and our uh, the the work that Australian forces have put in to build Afghanistan and to have uh, to to have all of that progress made in the last twenty years, um, you know, th- that alone should be reason enough. Um, Australia would not have been able to make as much progress there and do achieve um, the impact that it has had without the collaboration and contribution of um, the, their colleagues, their Afghan colleagues on mm-hmm. in the country. You know, and we've had conversation with um, uh, with uh, the veteran community who, who really think that, you know, it is the time to return the favour because some, um, those who have served in Afghanistan will now be coming back to um, the Australian community here. Yes, you know, they, it's a life-changing experience. They will never be the same again, but they can, they can continue living a safe life um, and have a home and have a shelter, whereas they know that their Afghan colleagues, just because, you know, they had the job, um, that particular job are now unsafe and they're now at risk. Promises thousands of Afghans are still trying desperately to flee the country while crowds inside the Kabul airport have thinned since the chaos we saw on Monday. It's a far different story outside where the Taliban now control the entrances as throngs of people clamour to get inside. CNN's Nick Payton... I believe in the generosity and the compassion of the Australian people. Um, and, and we have seen that, um, and they have shown it in, in you know, overwhelming numbers. Um, I don't think that anyone right now would argue that we don't have a moral or ethical obligation to help the people of Afghanistan, and 20,000 is not a big number. Um, you think about it, 20, it's not 20,000 straight away. You know, we go and fill up planes and bring 20,000 people. It will be over many years, and we have done it before. Um, you know, when when the conflict in Syria broke out, we've we've done the same, and we've done the same in previous um, uh, decades. Well, you know, in response to the the conflict in Vietnam, you know, some would argue that it's almost the same thing. Um, and if we did it then, we can absolutely do it now. We have the capacity, we have the resources, um, and it's the least we can do. In my Anglican prayer book, a book often associated with the establishment, not the underdog, there is a regular set prayer that pleads, defend and provide for the widowed and the fatherless, the refugees and the homeless, and all who are desolate and oppressed. Hear us, good Lord. From as far back as we can go, the Judeo-Christian vision of the good life puts the refugee and oppressed near the centre. Old Testament law demanded special consideration be given to the foreigner seeking protection in Israel. The family of Jesus itself had to flee the tyranny of Herod the Great and seek refuge for up to a year in Egypt of all places. In the early 400s, Bishop Augustine, one of the greatest theological intellects of the time, described the efforts of his churches to provide food and shelter to hundreds of people fleeing Saharan raiding gangs or Galatian slave traders. The church of the 6th century formalised sanctuary laws that made any part of church property 
even the pretty gardens, a place of legal protection for those fleeing danger. And right now, the MICA project in Australia and many similar Christian organisations in the US and the UK are passionately advocating for Afghan refugees, regardless of whether we share the same faith. I don't know the right political answer to any particular problem in our world right now. All I know is that the Christian tradition says that my first instinct when confronted by those fleeing danger mustn't be to think about border security, affordability, or passing the buck. My first instinct must be generosity and welcome, or it isn't Christian. See ya. You've been listening to the Eternity Podcast Network, eternitypodcasts.com.au.